Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Today is kind of a transition day. And you see it with the students too. School starts in the next week or so, depending upon where you go. And you know what that means. <laughs> Summer's over, right? School zones are going to start to flash those lights again and trips wind down. And really, this community, our calendar is not January to January, but August to August, school year to school year. And I think what I love about summer is sometimes it gives us an opportunity to step back and to relax and to get away. And then we get back into the grind of the school year societally, and we realize there's so much that competes for our time. There's so much that's thrown at us. There's so much that we can give ourselves to. And so today we're going to take a Sunday and we're going to talk about how we're supposed to respond in a world that wants all of us all the time, you know, in, in a busy and chaotic world that's just about to kick back off again. But before we do that, if you're new to CBC, welcome. And we do something every Sunday before we open scripture. We, we firmly believe that this space is different than the world outside. We firmly believe that God asks us to respond differently when we open the scripture. And what we mean is we live in a very critical culture. But we come to this place and we put away the lens of criticalness. And we say, hey, our job this morning is to contribute to the conversation of faith. We want to ask, where is God moving and what is he teaching me today? And so we're going to come together, open the scriptures, and ask the Holy Spirit to do a work, to grow us and to teach us. We're going to ask that the Holy Spirit show us more of God's goodness this morning, because that's why we're here. And so we're just going to say a prayer at the beginning of this thing. I'll let you guys, if you're comfortable, say a silent prayer, and let's ask that the Holy Spirit do a work this morning. I'll ask that you pray for me, that God uses words and preparation to ultimately show bigger picture things. So pray with me. God, I'm thankful to be here this morning. I'm thankful for changes in seasons, and I'm thankful for changes in our calendar. I pray this morning as we open your word and go to the psalm that you show us the beauty of your goodness. I pray that you show us the priority of your goodness and that you allow it to seep into our lives, busy lives as they might be. If you're comfortable, I'd ask that you just take a couple seconds and say a silent prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit might do a work in your spirit this morning. Let's ask you to pray for me, that God might use preparation and words to show us a bigger picture of what he's doing and why he's worth passionately following. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Hey, if you've got a Bible, we're in Psalm 16 this morning. We're in Psalms 16 this morning. This is one of my favorite Psalms in the whole book, and there's a lot of them. And it starts like this. Let's dive right in. A prayer of David. Protect me, O God, for I have taken shelter in you. So what I love about this Psalm, 
is oftentimes when they're writing in the Psalms, the Psalms are kind of like David in a couple other people's journals. He, he's excited and he's scared and he's frustrated and he's remorseful and he's shameful. Like you get all of these emotions in the Psalms. But what I love about this one in particular is he starts by saying, protect me, O God. And, and, and that idea there of protection in the life of David in this moment isn't necessarily a high watermark moment or a really scared moment. He's not saying there's a bear attacking me, save me. He's not saying Saul's trying to kill me, save me. That happens. He's not saying my life is in immediate danger. This psalm, why I like it is because it resonates with the everyday for me. That word protect there literally is in the perfect tense, which means, all right, which means that, that it's, it's an action with continuing results. Like, so I had a kid, my wife did three months ago, I'm never going to sleep again. One action, results that go for eternity. And so David is saying in this moment, God, protect me for I have taken shelter in you. And the question we have to ask is, what is he asking for protection from? The next verse, he says, you are my Lord, my only source of well-being. I'm using the Net Bible. If you have a NASB or an NIV, it says that you are my only good. What I love about this psalm is that David's going to look at his life and he's going to say, I need to remember that God is my top good. We live in a world that asks for all of us. We live in a world with so many choices. If you go on Amazon right now and you want to find a toothbrush, you're going to get 20,000 results back. You can go home and turn on Netflix. There's about 6,000 shows. We live in a world with ample choice because it's what we value as Westerners. It's what we value as Americans. We like freedom and we like choice. Here's my question. It doesn't seem like we're happier than we used to be or more joyful. There's a study last year that came out by um, Pew Research and one by the University of Chicago. And it says Americans on average are the most unhappy they've been in 50 years but we have more choice than we've ever had. How do those two things come together? Why are those two things seemingly corresponding? We've had more choice and yet we're unhappy. And here's what I think. I don't think it's the fact that we have more choice. I think it's the fact that we have more good choices. You're gonna get on Amazon, you're gonna Google a toothbrush, you're gonna get 20,000 results. 19,900 are gonna brush your teeth, you know? Right now, my wife and I just moved into our new house in Highland Village. We slept on the floor for the first time two nights ago, and we're trying to renovate it and live in it at the same time because we want to see how strong our marriage really is. And, <laughs> and you know it's hard between replacing all the lighting and all the flooring and all the paint colors, and there's not just paint colors, but there's like different finishes that mean something I've been told. What's tough? What's tough? is not the fact that you have to make all these decisions between good and bad. What's tough is that we're forced to make decisions between good and good. That 19,900 are going to clean your teeth. It's easy to make a choice between kale and canes, right? <laughs> That's a no-brainer. That does not take much of my emotional support. That doesn't take much of my mental acuity. What, what's hard is to choose between good things. I feel like we live in a culture. We live in a culture. There's a lot of good out there, but we're more unhappy than we've ever been. And we're like on edge if you follow it, you know? And you can see it. I mean, just this week, I don't know if you read the story, but an airline flight attendant literally had to duct tape a dude to a chair because he couldn't not be a jerk while flying. 
Which, by the way, every time you fly, I know sometimes it's uncomfortable, but if you're not blown away by the miracle that you are soaring through the air at 30,000 feet, and our ancestors had to, like, hire, you know, oxen and get malaria and typhoid fever just to get to Oklahoma, you need to reset your perspective, right? It seems like as a country, as a people, we have more choice, but we're more unhappy. It seems like we have more good surrounding us, but it's not equaling up to the good life. This is my question this morning. This is David's question. He says, God, continually protect me. And then he says, because you are my only source of good. This psalm for David is about him recognizing and ordering the goods in his life. This psalm is about David remembering that God is his best good. And in a culture, in a world surrounded by goods, I wonder if we need the same reminder too. Because so much vies for our time and our attention, and so much of it is good between PTAs, between different groups, between different church activities and different sports organizations and different school, X, Y, and Z. So much of it is good. What happens when we don't have the right good at the top? And so David says, protect me. I have taken shelter in you. You are my only source of good or I have no other good beside you. Just so we can clear something up. When he says, I have no other good beside you, he's using a figure of speech there. He doesn't mean that nothing else is good in the world but God. I had a friend once in college, and every time he said something was beautiful or good, he would stop you. He'd say, there's nothing good but God. And I'd say, well, that's just not true. Have you had canes? We've been over this already this morning, you know? You see in verse 3 there, he says that he had different people that he took pleasure in. The point of this text is not to make us feel badly because we enjoy other things. The point of this text is to make sure that we enjoy other things in the right order or priority because if we don't, it throws off the goodness or happiness or joy in our life. When he says that you are my only source of well-being, it's not that God is a statement of totality but priority. This is where we got lost in the mid-90s, late-90s, early 2000s in the music culture. You guys might not have been a product of that church environment. I was. And all the time, they wanted you to reset, rededicate, and then turn in all of your good music for worship music, right? They wanted me to give my Dre in for DC Talk, and I just wasn't on board with that. They said, hey, God is your only good all the time. And that's not what this text is saying. This text is saying there are other goods because God is good. This text is saying that God gives us good people and good friends and good food and good schools and good kids and good sports and good, good, good. But the hard thing is recognizing what's the better good amongst all all the goods. The hard thing is recognizing, recognizing what's at the top of this order. There's a quote that I really like. It says, the biggest threat to our spiritual lives isn't the big disaster. It's the losing of our passion for God slowly over time. It's the silent, slow leak of forgetting God is our best good that slowly deflates our passion. God being our good isn't a statement of totality, but priority. And we need to remember that there's a church father um, named Augustine, and he wrote about the ordering of our goods. And he said, to love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved more. He says, you need to remember that this is true, that everything created, though it's good, can be loved the right way or the wrong way. In the right way, that is, when the proper order is kept. In the wrong way, when that order is upset. David is writing a psalm, and he's trying to remember in the middle of his life that God is his best good. Because 
you got to understand the history of the Israelite people and David. At this point, the Israelite people, we just went through numbers. They were a beat-down, broken people. They were enslaved most of their lives. And finally, 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 at this point in their history, they had some goodness. They were at the top of the totem pole of the world military power for the first time ever. David brought military force, beat down everybody else, and started stacking win after win after win, money after money after money. He started consolidating for the first time the Jewish, not just nation, but empire. When we think of wealthy people, we think of his son Solomon, who modern day was probably worth about $2 trillion. I don't know how to figure it out. That's what the internet told me, okay? Um, David, though, wasn't a pauper either. They say he was probably worth somewhere around six or seven hundred billion dollars. He had a ton of money, which means he had access to all the things that he wanted. He needed to remember the order of his goods. The hard thing is not to choose between good and bad. It's to choose between which good is our best good for us. So David is writing a psalm, and he's saying, God, protect me, continually protect me, and remind me that you are the best good that I have. Because we are a pretty affluent culture too. And if we don't stop to think about this, if we don't order or prioritize our goods, what we see is we trust the wrong thing. Is that our best good becomes our job or our kids or our spouse, all good choices. Or our church, <laughs> all good choices. But this is the point of why we gather on Sunday mornings, is to remind one another that, that in a culture of good things, God needs to be our best thing. And so David is praying, saying, this is what I need to remember. Protect me from letting my order in life get out of order. Because he's going to talk about why God is good next in verse 4. He's transitioning. He says, I'm going to remember that God is really good. Let me tell you what I know about that. He says, the people that I used to admire, their troubles multiply. They desire other gods. I will not pour out drink offerings of blood, to their gods, nor I will make vows in the name of their gods. So essentially, David is parsing the cultural landscape. He's looking at the people around him that grew up with him, that loved gods, and he's saying they've lost their ability to see God as their best good. And slowly over time, when we lose the ability to see God as our best good, it leads to bad situations, bad circumstances, bad choices, bad lives. Saying if you don't rightly order your life around the thing that should be the very best good, then your life won't reflect goodness anymore. And there are example after example of this in our world. One of my favorites is to talk about, I'm in that life stage where every once in a while my wife and I will go on a date night and we look at each other and say, can we talk about something not kids? I don't know, you know? When you totally forget that you guys were something before these things came along and took over all of your somethings. There was an article a couple of years ago in Time Magazine that says research strongly suggests that children whose parents love each other are, more, are happier and more secure than, than kids raised in a loveless environment. And, and, and you're saying, shocking, what this article goes on to say is that there are stronger, happier kids when you prioritize your spouse over your kids. There was a study done in the UK with 40,000 kids in 2014. And it said that households revealed that adolescents were happiest overall when their mothers were happy in their relation, with their relationship with their fathers. It says they did better in school and they did better with their peers. I love this quote from Pew Research in 2010. It says, we've forgotten this truth. They asked a bunch of young parents in 2010 whether or not a good marriage was more important for a happy life. Kids won by a margin three times as big as when researchers asked the previous generation in 1997. I love this next quote. It says, 
but betting all your joy on offspring is a treacherously short-term strategy. Cuddly to toddlers turn into teenagers who greet any public display of warmth with revulsion, suspicion, or sullenness. Then they leave. Grown children do not want to be the object of your affection or the main repository for all your dreams, just as you never really wanted to hear their full toddler recaps of Paw Patrol. If you've done your job as parents, one day your home is mostly going to hold you, your partner, and devices for sending your kids messages that they then ignore. If you just drop kids off at college, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just simply put that whether it's your spiritual life or your family life, a rightly ordered life leads to a better life. That's it. And so often we forget that. And what happens when we forget that the order of our goods is important is we all suffer. If we mark our kids the center of our families, our families aren't as strong, aren't as good, aren't as happy, aren't as healthy, aren't as whole. So David points out, God, protect me from forgetting that you're my best good like these other guys have in this land that slowly, over time, saw other goods and then they started worshiping other things. Don't let me do this. And he says their troubles are multiplying. And this is his first point. Do you know why? Do you know why God is better than those things? Do you know why God's goodness should be the central goodness in your life? Because it's better for your life. So often, again, growing up mid-90s, early 2000s, we told the story of a gospel that had two parts to it. Life now, life in eternity. And we were saved today for tomorrow. But as you read the scriptures, the theme that you see over and over and over again isn't necessarily a gospel that just cares about eternity. It's a gospel that cares about now. And so what David is saying, what the psalmist says throughout is that following Jesus now, following the rhythms and the ways and the goods of God now leads toward a better life now. But we forget that because we have a myopic perspective on what good is. At CBC, we started a podcast a few months ago called A Better Way. And, and it's not just that, hey, you get to get saved and go to heaven one day. It's following Jesus makes life better now. It's the ways and rhythms of Jesus more are in line with what life should look like that will lead to more joy, happiness, flourishing. Because when you really think about it, Jesus came and said, we aren't living life how it should be lived. And he said, meekness is a better life ethic than domination in a Roman world. And I agree with that. He, he came and said that forgiveness leads to a better world than resentment. I think we'd agree with that. He came and said, love is more beautiful than hate. The ways of God are a beautiful way to live. We just got out of numbers, and God gave them 613 laws to live by, you know? And one of the things I love to do is find where God says to live in a certain way that I don't understand. And then over time, we realize that God knew what he was doing. One of the chapters we skipped in Numbers was Numbers 19. It's called the Red Heifer Ritual. It's all about what they do with dead things. So we skipped it because, you know, you're supposed to be encouraged when you leave this place, Right? And, and why he did that, and, and it didn't really fit us now, but why he did it was because they didn't know anything about diseases. They didn't know about infection. And so he had these stark rituals around when things die, because in the wilderness, a bunch of things died. When things die, this is the space you have to give it. This is how you clean. This is how you're supposed to go outside of camp for a few days when you touch dead things, because they didn't realize when you do, it spreads. Now, fast forward a couple hundred years, and we start to realize this is what infection is. This is how it spreads. This is what disease looks like. God knew what he was doing. He says, my ways aren't just there to test you, to see if you love me. My ways are there for you that you might find true, good life. Meekness over domination. Forgiveness 
over any kind of grudge, love over hate. We, we follow Jesus now because the ways of Jesus are simply better. So we have the Better Way podcast where people can say, this is how Jesus has increased the joy in my life. So he's saying, hey, God is good. God, protect me from not seeing that all the time. And I know it because you know what? I step back and I look at people that live in different ways that don't reflect your goodness. And over time, it's not going well for them. Because whatever you decide to make your best good, if it's not God, it will let you down. Your kids will move out and ignore you. Your job will not be there forever. Your 401k might dissolve. We've been through that before. Your church might let you down. I probably have, will again, you know? The point of us here together is to say there's one thing that won't, and it is your best good, because only one thing can stand under the weight of the worship that we give it, and that's God, and that's how he designed the world to be. David is reminding his people in the middle of all this choice, remember the best choice we make. And if we put that one at the top, other things flow and fit into place. But then he keeps going in the text. He says, Lord, you give me stability and prosperity. You make my future secure. It's as if I've been given fertile fields or received a beautiful tract of land. So he moves from just, it's going to be better for you now. And he says, hey, this is reason number two why God is good. Because I don't have to fear for tomorrow because God is constant. So you give me stability and prosperity, you make my future secure. And then he gives them an example. It's as if I've been given fertile fields or received a beautiful tract of land. The NIV says it like this. You are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. This was written in an agrarian society. And in an agrarian society, generational wealth looked like land. Generational wealth looked like lot lines and, and, and places you could grow crops and feed your family. So he says, this is the best good I have. Do you want to know what following the goodness of God is? It looks like he's giving you good land that you can farm for a long, long time. It looks like you are going to have stability for the rest of your life and your kid's life and their kid's life. We, we don't live as much in an agrarian society in the Flower Mound, Texas area. I grew up in this area. My dad grew up on a farm in Iowa. And my grandfather worked for this ministry or supported it. It was called the Heifer Project. Have you guys heard of that before? So the Heifer Project is more in tune with the rest of the world that is an agrarian society. And their whole ministry exists, like give goats to people. You know why? Because a goat can change a family's life. I got on their website and looked at some of the package deals. You can donate uh, a, a, a pack of chicks or ducks for $20. I'm just throwing this out there for you if you want to do some good today. You can give honeybees for $30, blessing curse, I don't know. Uh, a goat's $120. You can give a water buffalo for $250. You can give a heifer for $500. I love this. You can give the gift of an ark. Guys, this is so Jesus-y good, right? You can give the gift of an ark. It says change the world two by two. A gift includes two water buffaloes, two cows, two sheep, two goats, along with bees, chicks, rabbits, and more. <laughs> Call yourself Noah and let's go. It's $5,000, right? When he's writing this, he's simply saying that this is what stability looks like. It looks like land. This is what stability looks like. It looks like resources that will continue to give back. Sometimes we forget that when we read this text, it was written in an agrarian society. He's saying that the goodness of God won't disappoint today and it won't disappoint tomorrow. Other things will. He will make your future secure. He goes on to say that it's I've been given fertile fields, and I love that note in here. It's just you see the themes of grace run throughout this text. And I think we always have to stop down in our society 
and talk about why God does what he does. Because we live in a dominating culture of choices that are good and meritocracy, meaning that you are the reason why you have those choices. And the psalmist says, okay, this is what God is. He's good. He's good to you now, and he's good to you tomorrow, and his goodness will be stable for you going forward. But just so you know, you have been given these fields. You didn't earn them. It's really important to hear that you have what you have from God because God is good, not because you are good. It's this idea of inheritance. It's so intrinsic to a gospel of grace that God gave, God saved, God is good because he is good. And that doesn't, it's not supposed to make us feel badly. That's supposed to give us confidence in God. It's not supposed to make us feel shame. That's supposed to encourage us to know that even on our bad days, God is still good to us. This idea of inheritance that we see run throughout the scriptures, that God is good to us. Why? Because God is good. And I need to hear that. Because on my bad days, I need to hear that God doesn't love me because I'm good. <laughs> That's the gospel of grace. And so he follows it with, if you really find the gospel of grace, it says in the next verse, I will praise the Lord who guides me. Yes, during the night, I reflect and learn. And so a natural response here in this text to the overwhelming grace of God is to draw near. This is where you see the tie between God's action and our pursuit of God. Like we fully understand God's goodness. You know what you want to do with good things? Surround yourself with it, right? Let's go back to Raising Cane's. It's like a promo for Raising Cane's and me today. You had their sauce? I always get doubled. Do you know why? It's good. I dunk everything in that sauce. Sometimes just my fingers, but don't tell anybody else. It's good stuff. What do you do with good stuff? You draw near. You surround yourself with. It says, I praise the Lord who guides me. Yes, during the night I reflect and learn. Just meaning that we can't get an end to God's goodness. That it doesn't expire on us. That we can't outgrow it. That he will continually lead us. And he says in verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me. And so he deepens it. He says, God is good to me. I need to remember. He's good to me right now. He's given me stability. And every day I'm going to wake up and choose to believe that. Because we live in a world, always have, but now it's more prevalent than ever, within ever, where you can wake up and kind of believe whatever narrative you want to about what drives the world. You can get on social media and think it's all about you. <laughs> you can turn on TV and think it's all about a political party. You, you get to choose what you think makes this world go round. And so David knew that. And he said, so, you know what? I know that God is good. I know that he's good to be now. I know that he's good to be tomorrow. May I continually, every day, every single day, wake up and live into that knowledge. It fights against this one-time decision Christianity that just says I need to make a decision, I get to go to heaven, and I'm good. Living with Jesus, living out our faith, isn't just a one-time thing. We wake up every day and we choose God as our best good. That's hard because so many things compete for that spot. We wake up every day and we continually set God before us in our world, knowing full well that his good is our best good. And he goes on to say, because he is, God is my right hand, I will not be shaken. So my heart rejoices and I'm happy. My life is safe. And so he's talking about the goodness of God. And he's simply saying that I know God is good because he's always been good. He's always been constant. I've seen it in my past, and so that'll translate into my future. Time and time again, Scripture paints the picture that the rhythms of God lead to stability, prosperity, and security. Three things that we need as people. God says, those things that you intrinsically desire, you find in me. Don't forget that. In a world that vies for our attention, in a world where there's so many good options. But he doesn't stop there. So he makes the case for the here and now, but then he also broadens it out. 
If you look at verse 10, he says, you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful follower to see the pit. Sheol was basically how writers in the Old Testament defined the afterlife that they didn't know and were afraid of. Sheol is this place where you went after you died that wasn't good. This place that you went in the Hebrew expression of it where bad things happened because they didn't really have a full-fledged out uh, definition of heaven and hell. I don't know if we do either. It's just when you died, bad things happen. I don't want that to happen. It was their fear of, I'm going to go somewhere and it's going to be eternal damnation. And so they said, here's what the goodness of God does. It is with me now and it overcomes what's next. You'll not abandon me to Sheol. You'll not allow your faithful follower to see the pit. There's a writer named Paul David Tripp, and he, he actually has this phrase that he uses called eternal amnesia. What he says about followers of Jesus oftentimes in the here and now is that we forget eternity, and when you lose sight of eternity, you lose sight of what's really important. He calls it eternity amnesia. He says your eternity amnesia makes you unrealistically expectant, vulnerable to temptation, all too driven, dependent on people and things that will not only disappoint you and sadly makes you susceptible to doubting the goodness of God. What he says is what this writer, what David's telling us is that the goodness of God isn't dependent on today, but ultimately the thing we fear the most, God's already had victory over. We did a funeral here for some friends of ours a couple weeks ago. Let me tell you something. I've done funerals for people that follow Jesus and people that don't. One is way easier than the other. Because I can get up in front of friends and family and say, this isn't the end of the story. God's already won. This isn't the end of the story. Death doesn't define us anymore. Jesus does. He's alive. We get to get up in front of friends and family and say this thing that we fear the most. Death in life isn't feared anymore because God has overcome. One commentator said, the writer does not express the thought that he hopes merely to escape from death, but rather the bolder thought that the death shall never get dominion over him. So, so David says, hey, it's not just about me remembering that God is my best good. It's not just about me proving it by God being good now and promising to provide in my future. It's that ultimately God's goodness will outlast any badness that we see. And so he's saying, remember perspective. Because in light of perspective, God's goodness is magnified. The author goes on to say, recognizing the eternity that is to come allows you to be realistic without being hopeless and hopeful when things around you don't encourage much hope. This is what perspective does when we look at the big picture of God. It's what perspective does when we talk about the goodness of God because I do believe that the biggest threat we have to our faith, the biggest threat we have to the goodness of God, the biggest threat we have to all the other goods is slowly over time not remembering the order of our goods. So David's saying it's right here, it's right now, but it's also forever. And the worst thing is outdone by God's goodness. And so he ends in verse 11. He says, you lead me in the path of life. I experience absolute joy in your presence. You always give me sheer delight. And as we've worked through this psalm, I've used the word happy and joy. I mean, kind of synonymously, they, they can go a couple ways. But when I say happy, I mean like an undergirding sense of joy that doesn't go anywhere, you know? So let's go back to the kid analogy. Um, sleep is, is a rare commodity in my world right now. Last night, I got up at 2 with one of the kids. My other kid woke up at 4.35. I go into a room, went in this new house while sleeping on the floor, and... Um, 
she's cold or something. I was like, crawl back in your sleeping bag. It just seems like an easy solution for me. So I'm tired. I got to get up. I have to go to work. Sundays are kind of a bigger day in my life cycle, week cycle. And she looks at me and she says, hey, dad, can you sleep with me? And then she hugs me. And I said, go to bed. I'm kidding. I, um, <laughs> in that moment was, man, I'm, I'm not happy with the fact that I'm up, but the joy that I have isn't going anywhere, you know? So I laid down with her for 10 minutes, and then I said, I can't do this. I'm 37 years old. I don't sleep on floors, okay? <laughs> but it's this, this beautiful picture that when we talk about you lead me in the path of life, I experience absolute joy. It's not, it's not a shallow joy that says I'm happy all the time. It's a depth of joy that keeps in mind the perspective of God's goodness now and forever. And when we have that, when we have that, here's what we know, that a right perspective on God's goodness gives joy. Why I love this psalm, why I love this psalm is in a world that competes for our goodness all the time, in a world that competes for our attention, if we don't remember, if we don't remember that God is our best good, we won't be joyful people. And as followers of Jesus, as followers of God who's good today, tomorrow, and forever, what we need to realize is that if we understand that, then we are joyful people. Joyful people. So I look at our culture. I look at us ramping back up for, this, for the fall semester. I look at all the things that are competing for our time. And I'm asking for, if we have all these good things, why do we not seemingly have a good life? Because our goods are out of order. <laughs> and David says, protect me from other things being good. He says, here is, is why I know you're good. And then he says, you know what happens when rightly ordered goods are rightly ordered? God gives joy. God gives joy. In his work called Orthodoxy, there's an author called G.K. Chesterton. Some people would say it's one of the best books in the last hundred years. It's very, very good. But he basically says that like the chief end of Christians is to be joyful. He says, man is more himself, man is more manlike, when joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief is the superficial. Melancholy should be an innocent interlude, a tender and fugitive frame of mind. Praise should be the, pen, the permanent pulsation of the soul. Pessimism is at best an emotional half-holiday. Joy is the uproarious labor by which all things live. Saying as followers of Jesus, if we have a rightly ordered set of goods, it will give us joy. And when I look at the world around us right now, you know I think we need a little bit of? <laughs> a little more joy, a little less fighting on airplanes, you know? Because there's so much that competes for what's good in us. There's so much that competes for how we do things well, there's so much. We need to be reminded of where God's goodness falls in the depth chart of all the other things that we do. And that'll give us joy as a people. And I think as followers of Jesus, that is the biggest testimony to God's goodness, is our joy. That's it. Our joy in good times, our joy in bad times, our joy in busy times, our joy in renovation house times when you sleep on the floor with your three-year-old daughter, you know? The joy that people see in us from following Jesus is the biggest testimony to God's goodness. So we have to ask ourselves a question as a people, as a followers of Jesus, as gospel-centered communities. Use whatever Christian taglines you walk there. Are we a joyful people? If not, do we understand God's goodness? Do we have the right perspective of it? Because the biggest witness we can give those who don't know God is the joy that God gives us when he's our good. That's it. So I, I love this psalm because David is reminding us what I think we need to see time and time again. David's reminding us to fix our goodness around God's goodness. So what that looks like for us, I think sometimes it's just good that we have this chat. 
I think it's just good that we're reminded amongst the sea of other goods that God's our best good. Sometimes we need to do what verse 8 says and, and like continually put God before us because here's the deal. If we don't choose God every day, he slowly won't become our good. That's just what it is. If I wake up every morning, leave, and never see my wife, guess what won't be strong? My marriage. If you want something to be good, then surround yourself with it. So sometimes we just need to make a choice amongst all the other good things that God is going to get more of our time at the cost to other things because he is more important. He's a better good. Uh, Next week, we're going to start a two-week series called We Need Us, and it simply is reminding us as a community of faith why we need one another, why we need to show up on Sunday mornings or watch online and remember that God is good, why what we do here is important for our rhythms. Because you know what else is good? Brunch on Sunday mornings, not here. I get it. I've been there, right? But we need to be reminded that we need to choose God continually. And so the question is, how do we do that? It could be a devotional in the morning. It could be a walk. It could be something at night. That's your call, your answer. But I think as a people, we need to continually set the Lord before us and just be reminded, what do we see as our best good? And if it's not God, what's the cost of that? Because we live in a world that seemingly is unhappy, that is frustrated, and it's not fixated on God's goodness. And I think those two things go together. And then secondly, I'd say as a people, what do we need to do? Be joyful, (laughs) you know? It's the biggest testimony we can have to people about the goodness of God. If you're not, then maybe you stop down and focus on God's goodness right here and right now on what he's done for you now and what he's promised you for tomorrow. And ultimately, remember the fact that his goodness outkicks the coverage of death. That's a good thing. And that wells up inside of us in the sleepless nights and the not sleepless nights, joy that can only come from a rightly ordered set of goods. So might God, might God be our good And might we live that out and might people see joy? Because that's what happens when we have rightly ordered good centered around God. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for all the goods that we have. It's a reflection of how much you love us. It's a reflection of your grace. It's a reflection of, of just your goodness to us. My prayer is not that you take away the goods that we have. My prayer is that we realize that you're better than all those other goods. My prayer is David's prayer. Protect me, O God. May I find shelter in you. May I remember that you are my best good. As followers of Jesus, I pray that not only we remember that, but that today, that increases our joy. No matter what's next or what we're going through, hard or maybe not so hard, I pray that we can have joy through it because we have a right perspective on the goodness of God. I pray that as a church, when people see it, they see a God worth following. It doesn't just impact our one day, but our every day right here, right now. And we might be a joyful people because we not only know, but understand and feel the goodness of God all around us. Might we be that church? I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.